Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, fill us with your Spirit now. Help us to lay hold of the glorious truth of your words, to make them words that dwell within us, and to rejoice over the work that you are doing in our midst in the way that you are working through us to make yourself known. All of this we ask that you would grant through your very Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Duty and hope. I'm sure all of you have heard that Queen Elizabeth II died this week. Now, we as Americans, we aren't under her rule, but nonetheless, as Anglicans, I think there is a certain looking toward the Church of England and thus looking toward the monarch of the Church of England, at least with some sentimental love and thought, especially under the reign of Queen Elizabeth. She's been the longest reigning monarch in the history of England. She reigned for over 70 years. But one of the things that I think impresses people the most about her was her sense of duty. That she took on being queen when she was only 26. But one of the first things and earliest things that she is known for doing was simply being dutiful to the throne, being dutiful to the monarchy. Not for herself, not to lift herself up, but she saw it as a place of service to act before the people of England, to serve the people of England and to strive to do what was right for the people, to represent them on the world stage well, to think of them well, to pray for them. Now in these days, the monarch doesn't really have any power, but nonetheless, she was one who strove to make good decisions and to press ideas toward those who do make rules and laws in order to try to better things for her people. She did this out of duty, out of a sense of hope, out of a sense of love for God, that she was serving her God by serving her people well. Likewise, for today, it's September 11th. We all remember, many of us, I should say, not all of us were alive in that day, but those of us who were remember exactly where we were on that fateful September 11th in 2001 when the two planes struck the Twin Towers and brought them down, leaving over 3,000 dead and many more and just simply the first responders and those who helped that day. That all those first responders, all those people who came down to those Twin Towers were there out of a sense of duty and hope, hopefulness to save, hopefulness to help, out of a sense of duty that despite the fact of going to those buildings may mean their own death, they still ran into them to try to rescue as many people as possible. Those firemen, policemen, paramedics, yes, they served out of a sense of duty. They set their own lives, their own livelihood aside in order to go in to accomplish good despite the danger at hand. And again, in a book that I'm reading right now, 
There's a character who has lost all of his memories. And as he's trying to help a group of kids to do their duty, to do their job, they ask him, like, what happened to you? And he says, I don't know. All I know is that I woke up being tortured, imprisoned. But then I was able to escape, and I don't know how I could escape because everything just came flowing back, what I needed to do, how to pick the locks, how to fight when I needed to. But you just seem so hopeless, the kid said. What do you do when you actually run out of hope? He says, I will go on in duty to stop the bad guys, to stop the evil that is affecting our world. For even if I die in trying to stop it, I will fulfill my duty to do everything to stop the evil. And there's a sense in which he finds hope through duty. All of this, all of this idea of duty and hope being linked together brings us to our gospel lesson this day. For in this lesson, it's not about us, but it is about a God who keeps his duty to his promises by pursuing us. He is a God who does his duty by pursuing his people based on his promises, and thus, us knowing that he will fulfill his duty, it gives us hope that we might do that which he calls us to do, that we might then follow through on the duty he calls us to. That is what the gospel is about in so many ways of God fulfilling his promises because he wants to, but also because he must, for he has bound himself to promises. And because he is a promise-bound God, we can have hope that he will come through for us, that he will work for us, that he will come to us. <clears throat> and the way that he fulfills this duty is by sending Christ into the world. God performs a costly act of love as Kenneth Bailey puts it, by sending Jesus a costly demonstration for both sinners who are lawbreakers and sinners who are law keepers. Those who break the law are those who turn against it and, and do that which it says not to do. But then there are sinners who are law keepers who strive to do the law, who believe that by obeying the law they can earn God's favor. Both sides are sinners, are just that, simply sinners. But they have responded to that sinfulness in different ways. One strives to keep the laws good and as best as possible in order to avoid retribution. And the other just throws everything to the wind and runs away in order to just pursue sin because it seems hopeless. Both are in need of righteousness that only comes from God himself. And that righteousness is poured out through that costly demonstration of who Christ is. Because... God is fulfilling his duty to his promises. He sends Christ to fulfill that duty, and that's what we see in our gospel lesson today. The first thing that we see is sinners who hear. Verse 1 and 2 says that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Sinners who hear come to Jesus. And in fact, that's a follow-up to what Jesus just said at the end of chapter 14. In the very last verse, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. And then immediately we turn to the first verse of chapter 15, which of course is just an artificial distinction. It's just something we've added to the text in order to make it easier to find our way around. So originally it would have just gone, 
He who has ears, let him hear. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. There's a connection there that Jesus says, let him who has ears hear. Let him hear me. And so the tax collectors and sinners have ears to hear. And so they draw near. But who are these tax collectors and sinners? I think we all generally have a grasp, but I'll review just for a moment to remind us that the tax collectors are the traitors in Palestine, in Judah. They are ones who work for the government, Jews who work for the empire. They collect money and they extort money from others. And so just in that, by working for the empire, they are hated. But even more, they are forced to interact with Gentiles. And for some Jews, that made them constantly unclean to have to be in the presence of Gentiles. Made them unclean. But even more than that, than them just working for Rome, than them being in contact with Gentiles, was that they were known extortioners. They would always collect more than was required. They collected more than what was necessary, in essence, stealing from anyone who came near to them as they collected taxes. But that's how the whole system worked in the Roman Empire. The entire system was corrupt. If at the top of the empire, at the top they wanted to, wanted to collect a million dollars, say, and they had ten provinces under them, the provinces would only need to collect 100,000, but the provinces would want a little for themselves, and so they would say, oh, we have to collect 110,000 so that the higher-ups could keep their cut of 10,000. And then say there were 10 districts in one of those provinces, now they have to collect 11,000, but they want some too, so they say, well, we'll just tell everyone to collect 12,000 here in our district. And so they get to keep the extra 1,000, and down the line into the cities, into the and down to the tax collectors themselves. Everyone's adding a little extra onto what they're told to collect so that they can glean a little more for themselves. And so the tax collectors were known for doing that all the time and were hated. And then there are the sinners who come. Here, I think, in the context of these Pharisees being here, and with no other description of the sinners, I think that this is being used in the broadest way possible, that these are people who just simply don't live up to the pharisaical standards. It's not necessarily super notorious sinners who are thieves and doing wrong deeds, who are explicitly breaking the Ten Commandments. But it's just simply everyday people who don't live up to the standards that the Pharisees have. Pharisees set the bar high in order to try to protect the law, in order to guard the law. They fence it up, and they created all kinds of rules around it. And here are people coming to hear Jesus, who doesn't have all these extra rules, but is directing them back to the core of the law, directing them back to their need for grace, their need for salvation, something that the Pharisees never got around to doing very well before the people. And so, they hear Jesus and they want to come to Him. There are sinners who hear but can't live up to the standards that the Pharisees have given. They draw near. And what do the Pharisees do when they see this? They grumble, they complain, they gripe. Very much like all the Jews and all the Israelites leaving Egypt, traveling through the wilderness, all they did was grumble and complain and fuss with Moses and with God because they didn't want to trust in the work of God for them. 
They see Jesus doing that which they don't want to do, and so they grumble and they complain and they say, this man, this man receives sinners. He welcomes them. He eats with them. This man would probably be pretty close to us saying, look at this guy. This guy's doing this thing over here, and how terrible is that? It's a pejorative way of speaking of Jesus. This man, this guy, he's welcoming sinners into his midst and not just going around sinners, but he sits down and eats with them. He has fellowship with him. The Pharisees are frustrated and angered by the thing that Jesus is doing. But because there are sinners who come to hear Jesus, because there are tax collectors who are coming to hear Jesus, there must be Pharisees and scribes who grumble, for they are standing against Jesus. They are standing against the work of God because they fence in God's law. And so Jesus tells them a parable. Note who he tells the parable to. Not to the crowds, not to the tax collectors and sinners directly, but he's telling it to the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus explains the heart of the gospel to the scribes and the Pharisees and why Jesus must be doing what he is doing. He tells them about sinners who repent in this case because there are sinners who hear there must be sinners who repent. And he told them, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So you have two major things happening in this parable. You have the shepherd who pursues, the shepherd who goes, but you also have sinners who repent. But you have to ask yourself, what, what did the sheep repent of? Why is that the point of the parable? Why is that the big idea that Jesus puts before the people? That the shepherd found something that was lost and he's rejoicing. But then Jesus says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And it's because of how the Pharisees understood repentance. For the Pharisees, repentance was a threefold action. You had your confession of your sin, but then after that confession, you had to compensate for your sin. And then after compensating, you had to demonstrate a sincerity to not do that sin anymore. There were three aspects, that confession, that compensation, and that demonstration that had to be there for them to say, well, you have truly repented now. And then Jesus tells them a story about a shepherd. A shepherd who would be considered a sinner no matter how pious he might be. He would always be considered a sinner because he was simply that, a shepherd. Now that was something I finally understood this week. Why is it that shepherds were always considered sinners by the Pharisees? Why? It's because their sheep would steal from the fields that they would walk by when they were being driven out into the open country to eat and to graze. As they were being driven out, they would be passing by wheat fields or clover fields. And these sheep would just nibble as they went along. No matter what the shepherd did, he couldn't keep his sheep from nibbling at the fields. And that was considered a sin. 
the shepherd was responsible for his sheep stealing from other people. And so the shepherd could never go through this process of repentance. He could never confess the sum total of all the sins that he had committed through his sheep. Because he didn't know who all he had stolen from. He didn't know how much they had stolen. So he could never compensate and repay those people that the sheep had stolen from. And because he could never repay them, he could never demonstrate that he was able to keep his sheep away from these fields. He could never show a true repentance before the Pharisees. And so how appropriate for these Pharisees who are so concerned about this outward action, but not caring about the inward disposition to be presented with a shepherd who is the hero of the story. To be the one who goes after the lost sheep. So the shepherd was the bad guy to the Pharisees, but Jesus presents the shepherd as the good guy, which has always been ironic to me because you have the Lord being declared that he is the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, David says in Psalm 23. The kings were considered shepherds of God's people. It's always ironic to me that shepherds could be on a list of sinful jobs, sinful vocations that you should never raise your son to do, but yet God presents himself as a shepherd throughout the Old Testament. The kings are presented as shepherds throughout the Old Testament. But here Jesus puts before them just an ordinary, regular shepherd who has sheep who have probably stolen from people's fields, and one of them wanders off and gets lost. The shepherd loses track of him, and as soon as he realizes it, he leaves the flock. He goes after that sheep, and when he finds him, he grabs him and throws him on his shoulders and ties his legs together around his neck and carries this 70, 80, 90-pound animal back to town. And he gathers his neighbors and wants to rejoice and have a party because his sheep was found. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What did the sheep do to repent? Nothing. The sheep didn't do anything in this case. He was simply grabbed by the shepherd and carried back into town. And so the only thing the sheep did was get lost and get found. The shepherd just picked him up and carried him into town. I guess the only thing you can say that the, sheep, that the sheep did was he simply received the work of the shepherd for him. The sheep didn't keep running. The sheep stayed where he was. It shouldn't be surprising when the sheep get away and they get lost, they get scared. Once they realize they are totally lost, once they come to the end of their journeying and their lostness, they stop and they huddle down and they just start shaking with fear until the shepherd comes and gets them. And that is the repentance of the sheep, to simply be found by the shepherd and carried back into town, to be carried back and placed with the flock and to be rejoiced over. And that's the same with the coin. The coin doesn't do anything to be found. The woman lost a coin, and so what does she do? She cleans her house. She looks for it. She gets down on the ground with her lamp, and she diligently find, looks until she finds it. Again, the point, just so I tell you, there is joy over, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The coin didn't do anything but get lost and get found. And so Jesus lays down the groundwork 
of what repentance starts with. I wrote in my notes that he laid a new baseline, but it's not a new baseline. He just simply takes it back to its foundation that repentance at its core is about receiving God's mercy. There is a turning that comes with repentance, a turning from not trusting God because you're sinning and pursuing all the sin possible that you can in various ways. And then there is a recognition of your need for mercy and receiving that mercy and that repentance is founded upon simply receiving what God has done. That God comes to you and he brings you back to himself. And that is an act of repentance to be brought to God, to be found by God, to receive from God through Jesus the work that he has done on your behalf. And here's the other thing that happens in this parable is that we discover a God who seeks. Here's the God who fulfills his duty to his promises. Just as the shepherd has promised to care for the sheep and just as the woman has promised to take care of her silver coins. And when one of them gets lost, each of them goes after them and finds them and brings it back to the rest. We have a God who has promised to take care of his people. A God who has promised to come to us to seek after us, to follow after us, to pursue us. And of course, everyone would accept the idea of a sinner coming back to God. That's what the Pharisees wanted the sinners to do. They wanted the sinners to show their repentance by themselves coming to God, coming and pursuing God and doing what they were called to do. But the idea of God going after sinners was unheard of to these Pharisees. God chasing after sinners, God pursuing a sinner, God chasing them down despite their sin and bringing them to himself. A God who seeks after his people. And yet, it is all over scripture. If you flipped over to Ezekiel 34:11, you would hear of God saying that I am the shepherd who will pursue my people to the ends of the earth. I will do that which the leaders and which the priests have not done. They have led my people astray like sheep but I will go after them and bring them back to myself, he says. So we have a God who seeks, and he has promised that he will seek us. He has promised that he will come after us, that he will pursue us, that he will call us back to himself and lay hold of us. And he fulfills his duty toward his people and thus gives us hope that when we fall into our sins, we can receive God's grace anew and repent and turn from those sins and be welcomed back by God, but not just be welcomed, but be lifted up by God and carried into our repentance more fully. God comes to us in the midst of our sinfulness and carries us to himself. He lifts us up. He takes us up off the floor and he places us in his people. That is what the shepherd does, and that is what the woman does. They each lay hold of and pursue that which has been lost. And that is what God is doing this day for us. He pursues after us in all of our sins. He calls us back to himself. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his sacraments. He speaks to us through each other, through our fellowship together, calling us to himself continually and laying hold of us, not just calling us, but coming to us and laying hold of us through the work that he has done for us and is doing in us. 
And thus, we aren't only ones who are pursued by God and lifted up by him, but we become the ones through whom God pursues. We become the people that he leads into the world to seek after sinners. That God seeks sinners through us, having accomplished the great work of Christ upon the cross who came down to this earth and was incarnate to take our sins upon himself. He then sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to unite us to this very Christ who is the true and good shepherd, the true and righteous shepherd, and sends us out after he has laid hold of us, sends us into this world to make himself known through us, through the work that we do, through our actions, through our behaviors, through our words, through our relationships. God is being made known in us because he is working in us. Don't let the idea of God being made known through you, that Jesus is made known through you and what you do, don't let that be a fearful thing because that is God's calling upon you to make himself known through you. Thus, he is going to give you the grace to do it. He is going to give you the strength to do it. He is going to give you the abilities to do it. In all of your vocations, God is working through you to love and serve your neighbors. And in loving and serving your neighbors, he is making himself known through you so that you might then fulfill your duty. And so God fulfills his duty by keeping his promises for us. And thus, he enables us through hope, through the hope of his promises being fulfilled, through seeing his promises fulfilled. In that hope, we can then go about our vocations and go about the duty he calls us to. So that when our strength is weak, we can keep carrying forward, knowing that God has fulfilled everything on our behalf. He has fulfilled everything he has promised to do. And so we are enabled to then go forth and do that which he wants us to do. And so a God fulfills his duty. Our God fulfills his duty and his promises towards us. And thus we can hope and trust and have faith and belief that we can accomplish what he calls us to because he has done it for us already. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.